Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com slash play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. It is SNY.TV's The Juice on the Cuse podcast, covering Syracuse basketball, lacrosse, and football. Today on The Juice on the Cuse podcast on SNY.TV, we'll be talking about the end of spring football and Syracuse lacrosse's big matchup against Duke. I'm Wes Chang, and I'll be joined later by Brad Bierman, and our guest today is our great friend from 24-7 Sports and CuseNation.com, Stephen Bailey. Stephen, how are you today? I'm doing great, Wes. Thanks, as always, for having me on. Absolutely, Stephen, and it's great to be speaking with you, and we'll get you started on this one. We're coming up on the end of spring football for Syracuse. We'll start with the quarterbacks. Garrett Schrader is the presumptive starter, but how is the unit looking as a whole? Yeah, you know, I think we're going to get our best look at them during the spring game. Most of what I've seen has been one-on-ones, you know, which is not always a great indication of things because there's no safety help for the defensive back. and. Um, you know, limited limited in that sense, uh, and some brief goal line work. You know, so I, I would say that all four quarterbacks are throwing the ball somewhat similarly, you know, in terms of accuracy, um, you know, and, and I guess just the, the general quality of the throws. You know, I think Garrett and Justin Lampson have maybe looked a little bit sharper um, from what I've seen. Uh, and we've seen a lot of Garrett in the goal line period. It's been pretty much all all him working with the first-team offense, a little bit of Jacoby and Morgan, a little bit of Justin Lampson. Uh, so Justin Lampson threw a nice touch pass on, on a corner route um, in in that period a couple weeks ago. Uh, and then Dan Villari uh, is the fourth guy in that group, the Michigan Prince. But I, I think this spring has really been about acclimation for him, you know, learning – yeah, you know, all of those guys are learning new things under under offensive coordinator Robert and I, but him especially, you know, everything is totally new for him. So it just doesn't seem reasonable to 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 base much of an opinion off what I've seen from him in practice. But you know, we're going to see an hour and a half of of presumably team periods and and a lot of throwing um, for the spring game, and I, I think we will really be able to get a better feel for for where he's at then. You mentioned Robert Anai. He's the new offensive coordinator. How is the offense taking to him? You know, the, the players are, are speaking highly of him. I think that's kind of what you would expect at a time like this. Uh, but, you know, by that same extent, you've got a coaching staff that, that knows it needs to win this year. You've got players who are frustrated from the way things went last year, especially anyone involved in the passing game. So, you know, I, you know maybe that, that gives these positive reviews a little bit more weight, but um, 
Chris Elmore, Courtney Jackson, and Garrett Schrader spoke with briefly. Um, Anthony Queeley, all of those guys uh, have strong early impressions of Anai. It seems like he's an analytical guy, um, got a background working with tight ends. So you see him working um, with Mike Schmidt, the offensive line coach and run game coordinator, a little more than Sterling Gilbert did previously. Sterling was you usually see him around practice working with the quarterbacks and the receivers, and he's also the quarterback's coach. Word of the night is a little bit more focused on what's going on in front. Uh, he's known for trying to move his players around and use them maybe in smaller roles to fit their skill sets. So I'll be really interested to see, you know, how you know how he finds ways to get maybe some of the uh, the non every down guys on the field on offense. Someone like Trevor Pena how he's utilized. I mean, we all know Chris Elmore can, can kind of do it all, but maybe now that you have an offensive coordinator with a different perspective, there's even there's even more ways you can utilize him as, as the great blocker that he is. So, you know, I would say certainly there's optimism, um, but that's kind of the time for this. So it's about what you'd expect. Steven, let's talk about the defensive side of the ball. And I want to start on the defensive line because that's the unit that lost all of its major contributors from last year. There's a group of really unproven players right now taking first-team reps. How does that unit look? Yeah, that is the question. And Dino Babers basically admitted as much <laughs> in his first press conference in the spring. Like, that's the story for the defense. You know the linebackers are great. Uh, I think the secondary is very good. Certainly the corners, Sergey Love, Verizon, Garrett Williams, and Deuce Chestnut, and a really deep group of, of experienced safeties competing there as well. But if you can't get a pass rush <laughs> and you can't, you know, stop the run on early downs, it, it's, you know, those players behind the line aren't really going to be able to, to do what they do best and be put in positions to make impact plays. I, I have serious questions about the defensive line. Um, I think there are a few players back who you can ex- expect to provide steady contributions. I think Caleb Okachuku at defensive end, you know, has shown he can play at the ACC level. Um, has been a, a, a rotational backup and I think is probably ready to make that next step and, and either be a starter or be a, a little bit more heavily used. Um, opposite him is Steve Linton right now, who is, I would say, probably the, the highest ceiling guy, you know, on the defensive line and, and frankly, one of one of the guys with the highest potential on the roster. And you just watch him as, as a pass rush guy and you see the range, you see the speed, um, he's been giving us his offensive tackles some trouble this spring, a little bit of trouble uh, with his speed rush. Um, but, you know, can he hold up against the run? Can he get big enough and can he can he fine-tune his handwork and his positioning enough so he doesn't get two hands on him and doesn't get driven back three or four yards? Uh, so, you know, those are kind of your two guys at defensive end who are back with experience. There are younger guys like Jatias Keeter and Elijah Fuentes, who are trying to step in and, and, and earn contributing roles there. And then at defensive tackle, Terry Lockett is the guy right now. He was a true freshman last year. You don't often see true freshmen play as much as he did down the stretch. Uh, he's gotten some rave reviews from the defensive veterans for his leadership and, and kind of some of the um, off-the-field things they saw from him during during the winter, you know, between the end of the, the football season and the start of, you know, organized team winter conditioning. Um, you know, so but is he ready to be a 40, 50-snap guy? Is, you know, does he have the physical tools to, to, 
to do that yet, you know, early in his career. Remember, most college defensive linemen redshirt their first year. So you've kind of got all of that, and then you know Syracuse is going to go try and get a transfer to after the spring. And they're going to need to come away with with four to six guys who they really trust out there. I mean, ideally six. And, and, you know, I don't know if they have one right now who is like clear sack of the box just like Kingsley Jonathan was, just like McKinley Williams was, and Curtis Harper was close to, and certainly Cody Roscoe was, and Josh Black was, right? I mean, you had all these guys you knew exactly what you were getting getting from, and now it feels like you got a bunch of guys with interesting traits and varied experiences, but, but none of them are a known entity. So, you know, Dino's right. That is that is the story of the defense, and, and what they can do this offseason will be paramount in determining whether they can get off the field come fall. Steven, you wrote about it last week. Michael Jones told you that he felt Syracuse's linebacker core is among the best in college football. Do you agree? Uh, I think it is certainly among the best that Syracuse has had in recent years. You know, the group that I that I kind of liken it to in my head is Zaire Franklin, Terrace Bennett, uh, and, and Jonathan Thomas, right? You've got veterans who have played alongside each other for multiple years, now in the same system for a couple of years. They, you know, get along well. Uh, there's, a, there's a connection there. You know, they're working toward the same ends. And, and you see the chemistry on the field and how they play. Uh, and they certainly have all of the physical tools to, to excel at the college level. Of course, what Michael, you know, Michael said, from my perspective, as someone not in that locker room, is lofty. You know, best linebacker group in the nation. You know, certainly that group of Zaire Paris and Jake weren't the best linebacker group in the nation. They were excellent. Certainly one of the best in the conference. Um, but I think if you want to be, you know, for 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 you to become the best in the conference, you've got to try and be the best in the nation. So I think that's the approach they're taking. I. I don't think that anyone is looking past that group. Um, to me, the question is, can the defensive line do what it needs to do to allow those guys to make plays? Because, like I said, if you have guys who are getting, you know, blocked backwards on runs two or three yards, uh, it doesn't matter who's playing linebacker if, if you can't get to the spot. You know, and if you're you're constantly in second and one, second and two, you know, these these – aggressive offensive situations, well, you know, maybe you can't blitz Marlo Wax and Stephon Thompson as, as much as you wanted to. You know, you need you need to be ready to cover. Uh, it's just, you know, to me, so much of what the back eight is able to do is going to come down to the defensive line. If the defensive line is good, I, I think you'll be looking at – I think – I'll tell you this. I think that Syracuse's linebackers are among the best in the conference, but they won't get the credit they deserve unless the defensive line, you know, can put up an, an adequate uh, performance this fall. And, Stephen, we'll get you out of here on this one with the recruiting question. Syracuse picked up a commitment from quarterback Lenore Sellers earlier in March. I believe this is the earliest commitment that Syracuse has had, even earlier than Tommy DeVito in 2017. What's the significance of that? It's the earliest quality commitment that I have covered. Um it's drawn a bunch of different names out, you know, from fans who are maybe, maybe followed the team for, for even longer than I have. Um, but certainly in the Dino Babers, Scout Schaefer era that I've covered, 
this is the best early commitment they've gotten, and, and that run was pre- probably previously held by DeVito. Um, and what's really interesting to me is it's never been harder for Syracuse to recruit. You know, Dino Babers is going into year seven, and John Wildhurst, his boss, has basically said, that, you know, hey, you need to win games. You need to win more games. He didn't say exactly how many, but, you know, if, if they go out and go three and nine, I don't think there's going to be a year eight. Um, and I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying it's going to happen, but every every other coach that they're competing with in the recruiting trail knows that and is going to utilize that. And it's just it's just hard for any coach in this situation to recruit. It's you know it's something they're going to be working against. It's something that I think hurts you early in the cycle coming off of the last football season. It's something that late in the cycle, if you have a good, good year, you can go shove it and shove it in someone's face and say, hey. You know, we told we told you we were going to be here. What we're telling you is working. And, you know, I think after that 10-3 and three year, right, Syracuse landed Mikel Jones, Syracuse landed Neil Nunn, and Lee, Lee Kobo, who is now at West Virginia. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think when the worst is an ideal pickup at quarterback, for those unfamiliar, he was previously committed to Virginia while Jason Beck and Robert and I were there. Anand and Beck come over. They reoffer. Um, you know, sellers commits before even visiting. There is a ton of trust uh, within that group. Uh, sellers actually has a secondhand connection to Donovan McNabb. His quarterback trainer works with McNabb um, to run the, the QB Legacy Group, um, and they hold events. So Lenore spoke with Donovan McNabb over the phone before committing to Syracuse, and I initially met him last summer at a camp. Um, it's just a very good fit on, on multiple levels. So it's kind of fell into Dino Baber's lap. I mean, obviously, you know, he, he hired those guys, but, you know, Dino, Dino got the best early commitment at the hardest position to recruit, uh, you know, that he, that he has, you know, since he came to Syracuse. And now he's got a tough challenge in front of him and his staff to go out and, and round out that class while, you know, coaching for their jobs this fall. It is it is a really, really interesting time for, for Syracuse football recruiting. Stephen, thank you again for coming on the program. Again, Stephen Bailey from 24-7 Sports and CuseNation.com. Stephen, appreciate your time as always. Enjoy the rest of spring football. We'll speak with you soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Wes. Talk to you soon. Always love speaking with Stephen Bailey from 24-7 Sports, and I'm now joined over the phone by the Juice Online Editor-in-Chief and my very good friend, Brad Bierman. Brad, how are you today? I am doing well, Wes. Thank you. Brad, Syracuse lacrosse picked up its third win of the season on Saturday against Stony Brook with a 14-9 win. It was a Tucker Dordovic show as he scored six goals and added three assists. I think it was a must-win situation. That's exactly what they got. They certainly did, Wes. Uh, This was a, a game that Syracuse had to win, and they did win. And you have to wonder how that halftime conversation went between head coach Gary Gate his assistance, and the team as the game was tied at four going into the third quarter when the Orange exploded to take a big lead in the game and hold on to win by five. It was really important. Number one, you had to get a victory. I mean, Syracuse was two and four going into that game. We know what a tough schedule they have this season. Tucker Dordovic has been most of the offense this year along with Brendan Curry. Those two are, are the captains, team leaders, and the offensive forces so far this season for the team. And what I saw in the game was certainly much better defensive play by the in-close defense, the defensive midfield players, and goalie Bobby Gavin, who's 
been hot and cold so far this season, uh, alternating in the nets with Thompson, the backup goalie. And then offensively, while Dordovic had career highs in, in points and goals, Syracuse has to continue to get more offensive production from their other players on attack and the short stick midfielders. That's something that's really plagued the offense so far this season. But all in all, it's a victory to get to three and four now heading into the second half of the season and seven tough games. So, Brad, it's the second half of the season. They have seven tough games ahead. That starts with number 10 Duke on Saturday at the Cary Dome. Give us your preview of the game and your outlook on the remainder of the season. Well, it's real interesting, Wes, because Duke will be making its first appearance in the Dome since 2017. In 2019, the two teams played at Cicero North Syracuse High School as the Dome was being used for NCAA women's basketball. And then, of course, there was no game played in the 2020 pandemic season. So this is a home game that Syracuse needs to win. The Orange have already lost two games so far this year to Maryland and Army at home, have to protect home turf because Duke is still a very talented team, ranked this week number 10 or 11, depending on the poll. And it's going to start at the face-off circle. Uh, Jacob Falp has had a great year so far for Syracuse. Uh, with new assistant coach T.D. Erlin, uh, uh, the face-off specialist, one of the best of all time. Duke has a great face-off specialist as well in Jake Nasso. So it's going to start at the X. And for Syracuse, they're going to have to keep up the defensive performance, move, uh, continue to move forward as they did last week against Stony Brook. And I think that's going to happen. Again, with new uh, offensive coordinator Coach P this year on defense, you can kind of see steady improvement uh, in slides and playing a little bit of zone and really being aggressive when they played man, uh, man-to-man defense. And, of course, we, I mentioned earlier the goalie play has been hot and cold, so you're going to need some real consistent play in the net. And then, again, offensively, really need to see more production from, from different players. Uh, you know, they've, injuries have really hurt. Uh, you know, there's about four key players that are not going to uh, – that are questionable to play in this game for Duke. So, you know, Syracuse is losing some depth from a roster perspective, but more offensive players have to step up because Duke has long, rangy defensemen. They're always known for, you know, being very aggressive at that end of the field. And so this is a game that Syracuse really needs to win for momentum. They haven't won two games in a row all season, and then it begins a stretch where they're playing all ranked teams except for when they go on the road to Albany, which will also be a very tough game because it's going to be on the road and a short week that particular week. But, you know, you look at at Notre Dame, uh, as I mentioned, at at Albany coming just, you know, five days later, then in the Dome against Cornell, ranked in the top five, undefeated the Big Red, then having to go on the road to face North Carolina, another tough ACC road game. Syracuse has already lost at Virginia this season. Then they come back and host the Cavaliers uh, in the Dome before wrapping things up again against Notre Dame. That is really tough. So to make the NCAA tournament, you have to finish at least with a 500 record, 7-7, and to even be considered for an at-large berth. So that's where things stand for Syracuse. They know that they've got to win at least four more games of these final seven. They're going to be tough, but there certainly wouldn't be a better way to start than beating Duke in the Dome on Saturday. And Brad, we're right at the end of our show. Your closing thoughts. Well, Wes, while missing out on the uh, Sweet 16, it was just a year ago, we were 
uh, enjoying the run for the Syracuse basketball team as they made the Sweet 16 for the third time in the last six NCAA tournaments. Thinking about Duke and head coach Krzyzewski and whatever Duke loses, if they lose in this tournament, that will be his final game. And Duke's actually a one-point underdog in its Sweet 16 game against Texas Tech. And thinking about that because Coach K won his 1,200th game beating Michigan State to advance to the Sweet 16. And that puts Jim Beheim 101 victories behind Coach K. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I thought Andrew Crowley had really interesting comment where he thought Jim Beheim might be coaching for another three to five years because he enjoys it so much. He's young at heart and he really, you know, wants to continue his career. And would it be possible ever for Jim Beheim to overtake Coach K? Well, 101 victories right now, not including any more wins that Krzyzewski may get in this tournament. And of course, that would mean five 20 win seasons, give or take a couple victories. And that would have Jim Beheim coaching through the 2026-2027 season. It seems like a long way off. It doesn't seem really feasible but that something like that's going to happen. But, you know, when I heard uh, Andrew Cowie mention that, it got me thinking that could it be possible? Is this what Jim Beheim really wants to do, to go out on top as the all-time winningest coach? Well, starting next season, he's going to be the active winningest coach. So that's going to get a lot of attention but I just thought it was interesting is figuring out the tenure and length of Jim Beheim's career, matching it up with those kind of numbers with total victories. Brad, my closing thoughts are on former Syracuse star Chandler Jones, who's getting a huge payday. He agreed to a three-year, $51 million deal with the Las Vegas Raiders over the weekend after an incredible six-year run with the Arizona Cardinals. Chandler earned his fourth Pro Bowl nod in 2021 after logging 10 and a half sacks, 41 tackles, 12 tackles for loss, and six forced fumbles. Congratulations to Chandler for all of his success and, of course, on the new contract. That's it for us for Brad Bierman. This is Wes Chang reminding you that I really like incomplete. You've been listening to the Juice on the Cues podcast on SNY.TV, and we'll see you next time. This has been the Juice on the Cues podcast, part of the SNY.TV audio network. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 